Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. Today we're starting a new book. It's titled The Buddha's Way, Volume 10. And we're actually going to be studying chapters 1 through 10 in today's class. And if you've read these chapters ahead of time, that's wonderful because you probably have some questions of clarification and areas that you'd like to ask questions. If you haven't read these chapters, it's okay because we're going to read them in class and you'll have students that are volunteering in Zoom to be able to read the chapters and then I'll teach afterwards and then open up to any questions that you have. So whether you're joining us in Zoom and Facebook, YouTube, you'll be able to see the actual chapters on the screen when we get to that point of our class where we're studying the individual chapters. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class because it's through studying with the words of the Buddha that you'll understand what the path to enlightenment is. It's all too often in the world that people are just sharing kind of story by story by story by story and there's a lot of myth and folklore and misunderstanding out there in the world related to the buddhist teachings but when you study with the words of the buddha and you see what he did and what he didn't teach then you can learn reflect and practice his teachings and see the condition of the mind gradually improving because you've actually been studying the actual path to enlightenment that's declared by an actual buddha So that's what we do in this program as we study the words of the Buddha. And then on Sunday and Wednesday, we have a program where we also use the words of the Buddha, but it's just volume one. In this program of the Pali Canon and English Study Group, we study volumes two through 13, and we've been making our way all the way through the book series, arriving to volume 10 today. And then we have three more volumes before we'll start all back over again from the very beginning. If you would like to join this program, you're more than welcome to join this program and learn and come here each Saturday. If you miss a class, there's the replay because this is recorded on Facebook, YouTube, and on our podcast. And you're also welcome to join the group learning program, which is on Sunday and Wednesday. Some students do both of these programs together. Some students choose to just do the group learning program and complete that. It's a seven-month program. Complete that maybe once or twice before they move in to the Polycanon and English study group. But some students are able to do both. It just depends on what the amount of time is that you have available in your schedule. But either way, I'd like to welcome all of you guys to this program and let you know that the way that we start is we start with a meditation. We start with just a little brief, little top-up meditation, just for about 10 minutes or so, just to prepare the mind for the class. Because if you've got all this 
this clutter kind of circulating around in the mind, as we study, it'll be more difficult for you to retain the teachings and then actually apply them in daily life. So by us actually practicing a little bit of meditation and kind of clearing out the mind a little bit, you'll have a more crisp and clear mind so that you can retain the teachings for a longer period of time. And then you'll actually be able to apply them in your daily life. So we'll start with a little brief meditation. I'll just give you a little bit of light guidance because most people who are in this program tend to be meditators who have either learned with me in the group learning program or other parts of my travels and teaching. So I'll just give you a little bit of light guidance in case you've never joined us for meditation before. So go ahead and take your meditation position, whether that's seated, lying, or standing, and just get the lower body and the hands and arms comfortable. The upper body should be nice and erect. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. And now just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'm going to do some chanting. And if you know these chants, you're welcome to chant along. And then afterwards, I'll come back with some more guidance. Oh. 
volta e... Okay, you should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Establishing a nice, steady, consistent breath. Then start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. and out. Whenever the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. I'm gonna let you do this work now of just focusing on the breath, cutting off and letting go of any time the mind moves off the breath. Breathing in, and out.
We'll just transition over to our class where we'll be studying the words of the Buddha. Anybody that's joined us since we started meditating, I'd like to welcome all of you. We're going to have a student volunteer read each chapter. And then after a student has read, I'll share some teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions on each individual chapter. So I'll just turn things over to all of you, specifically Miranda, who's our moderator for today, in order to guide us through the reading of each chapter for today. Um, yes, sir. Let's begin with Allie reading chapter one. Looks like Allie's internet might have dropped off, Miranda. I'm not seeing her in the class. I'll go ahead and read chapter one, please. Okay. Or one first, then. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, right and wrong refuge. They go to many a refuge, to mountains and forests, to parks and tree shrines, people threatened with danger. 
That's not the secure refuge, not the supreme refuge. That's not the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all discontentedness and stress. But when, having gone to the Buddha, the teachings, and the community for refuge, you see with great wisdom the Four Noble Truths, stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to distilling of stress. That's the secure refuge. That's the supreme refuge. That is the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all discontentedness and stress. All right. Thank you, Miranda. All right, so here the Buddha is talking about this refuge, and he's talking about going to the Buddha, the teachings, and the community for this refuge, that the mountains, the forests, the parks, the tree shrines, which are kind of like practicing animism, that there's some cultures during the lifetime of the Buddha, and even now, that they believe things like trees have a spirit or the water has a spirit. So during the Buddha's lifetime and even now, if someone feels that they're in danger or threatened by danger, they might run, you know, to a tornado shelter or to the mountains or to a cave or the forest or things like this, right? And the Buddha is saying, you know, these things aren't a true refuge. They're not a real secure refuge. So let's understand what a refuge is. I put that down here in my explanation. A refuge is a shelter or protection from danger or distress, a place that provides shelter or protection something to which one has recourse and difficulty. So the Buddha is saying that none of these places can actually really protect you from danger because the danger to a Buddha is discontentedness and rebirth. That's the real problem that every unenlightened human being is facing is that the mind continually gets shaken up with discontentedness. The mind continually gets shaken up through various situations and beings are continually being reborn. This is the real danger. And if someone's scared or having fear, that's discontentedness. So if somebody's running in danger, feeling fear, and they're running to the mountains or these tree shrines or these parks out of this fear, then the real solution is to eliminate the fear eliminate the craving desire attachment that's causing the fear so if you train in the buddhist teachings that's what eliminates all discontentedness or stress which is what the buddha is describing here and he says you know going to him essentially having confidence in him when he says having gone to the buddha that means having confidence in the buddha that he is indeed enlightened having confidence in his teachings having confidence in this community that you're part of that's the real refuge. That's where the mind is really going to get fully protected because when you eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance, these three poisons, three unwholesome roots, or three fires, and the mind moves to this enlightened mental state where it's no longer experiencing any discontentedness, that's the real protection. That's the real refuge. That's the real secure refuge or the supreme refuge is what the Buddha is explaining here because there, the mind has released all discontentedness and stress. And in order to be able to do that, a individual would need to be able to see with right wisdom the Four Noble Truths. That's where you learn what is discontentedness or stress, the cause of discontentedness or stress, the elimination of discontentedness or stress, and the way forward, which is the Noble Eightfold Path, 
This is the path to enlightenment, and it's the way to eliminate all discontentedness or stress from the mind. This is the real refuge, because once your mind is in the enlightened mental state, it's fully protected. It doesn't matter you know, what somebody else says. It doesn't matter what somebody else does. It doesn't matter what's going on or transpiring in your life. Your mind will not be shaken up whatsoever. Once it's in that enlightened mental state, it's fully protected. So the Buddha is encouraging students to see him as a teacher, his teachings in this community as the real true refuge, this supreme refuge, that if you go to this refuge, then you can actually gain release from all discontentedness and stress. What questions do you guys have on this teaching? Uh, it does not appear that there are any questions for this chapter, sir. All right. We'll go to the next one, chapter two. Beings are few who are reborn among human beings or heavenly beings because they have not seen or noble truths. Then the perfectly enlightened one took up a little bit of soil in his fingernail and addressed the monks thus. What do you think, monks? Which is more, the little bit of soil in my fingernail or the greater? Venerable sir, the great earth is more. The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great earth, that little bit of soil is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So too, monks, those beings are few who, when they pass away as human beings, are reborn among human beings. But those beings are more numerous who, when they pass away as human beings, are reborn in hell, in the animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits. For what reason? Because monks, they have not seen the Four Noble Truths. What for? The Noble Truth of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Cause of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Elimination of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Way Leading to the Elimination of Discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. What do you think, monks? Which is more? The little bit of soil in my fingernail or the great earth? Venerable sir, the great earth is more. The little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is insignificant. Compared to the great earth, the little bit of soil that the perfectly enlightened one has taken up in his fingernail is not calculable, does not bear comparison, does not amount even to a fraction. So too, monks, those beings are few who, when they pass away as human beings, are reborn among heavenly beings. But those beings are more numerous who, when they pass away as human beings, are reborn in hell, in the animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits. For what reason? Because monks, they have not seen the Four Noble Truths. What for? The Noble Truth of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Cause of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Elimination of Discontentedness, the Noble Truth of the Way Leading to the Elimination of Discontentedness. Therefore, monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Miranda. 
So let's talk about a few different things here. We're getting ready in volume 11 to move into what's titled the realms of existence. And there we're going to be learning about the realm of hell, animal realm, afflicted spirits, human realm, and the heavenly realm. But here in this book and some of the other books, there's a few teachings related to these realms. And when the Buddha taught about these different realms, he's just sharing the truth of what's actually occurring in this whole cycle of rebirth. As you see, he never uses fear, guilt, or shame to try to convince somebody to learn and practice his teachings, but instead, he's just sharing what is actually the truth. And what he's sharing in this teaching is if you're human and you haven't seen and understood and deeply penetrated the Four Noble Truths, then it's more likely that you're going to be reborn in hell, animal realm, or afflicted spirits because there's very few beings that are reborn back into the human realm or into the heavenly realm who haven't been exposed and deeply seen the Four Noble Truths. Because it's the Four Noble Truths that gives you that penetrating wisdom to understand what is discontentedness, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. So you could never get to enlightenment if you didn't first establish right view, understanding the Four Noble Truths. That's where you have that breakthrough of understanding what is discontentedness, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. That's where that's the very beginning teaching of getting onto the path to enlightenment. It's the very first step of the full path called right view. So when the Buddha is talking here and he's saying that there's very few beings in the human realm that are reborn back into the human realm, it's because they haven't seen the Four Noble Truths. And what he means by seeing is he means seeing clearly and understanding it, not just looking at it in a book and like, oh, I've seen the Four Noble Truths. Okay, I see them. I see them there in writing. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is deeply penetrating it so that you've learned them, you've reflected on them, and you start practicing them. Because once you break through and you have right view well established and you understand that you're causing all your discontentedness, you're causing it based on craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing and strong eagerness. Once you understand this and you've deeply broken through to that and penetrated with wisdom, then the only option is stop doing this and train the mind to no longer have craving, desire, attachment. Because if you understood the Four Noble Truths deeply and you continued along the journey of just wandering and roaming you know, blaming other people for your discontentedness, then you haven't really seen the Four Noble Truths. You haven't penetrated the Four Noble Truths. But if you penetrate it with wisdom and you deeply understand it and you can see with 100% certainty that you are indeed causing your anger, your sadness, your frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, resentment, jealousy, all these discontent feelings and others, then once you understand that, then the next thing is, all right, well, how do I get rid of this and let me partake in the training to be able to eliminate it? And having done so, once the mind gets to enlightenment, then there is no more rebirth. Here, the Buddha is talking about not only a rebirth in the human realm, but he's talking about rebirth into the heavenly realm. And that's not the goal. The goal isn't to be reborn into the human realm or into the heavenly realm. That's still the cycle of rebirth. And that means a being is going to experience discontentedness all over again, continuously experiencing discontentedness and displeasure, despair, sorrow, and grief until you make an end 
to the craving, anger, and ignorance that's in the mind. So by penetrating the Four Noble Truths and seeing the wisdom in the Four Noble Truths, then you understand you're causing it, and now you can work to eliminate it and get to enlightenment where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing any discontentedness. And once the mind's experiencing that, you'll be able to observe it for yourself. The Buddhist teachings aren't believe, 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 and hope you did all that right and you go to heaven and you're there forever. That's not what the Buddha is teaching and that's not true reality. Instead, you're learning now, you're reflecting now to independently verify the teachings. Then with that wisdom, you're practicing that wisdom, making wiser decisions now. And then you experience the results of having trained the mind right now, that you see the discontentedness gradually diminishing in the mind. And this is where you can see the mind moving closer and closer to enlightenment. And once you're in that enlightened mental state, you'll know that there's no longer any rebirth. So here he's talking about the human realm and the heavenly realm, which none of these realms are permanent. Even the hell realm, the animal realm, the afflicted spirits realm, the human and the heavenly realm, these aren't permanent existences beings will move in and out of those realms the only thing is is that the hell realm animal realm and afflicted spirit realm you can't attain enlightenment in those lower realms so the buddha talks about being in those lower realms like a prison and we've all experienced countless animal births in our past and we may have even been in hell or the afflicted spirit realm in the past and you may start to observe those at different times. You may have even been in the human realm or the heavenly realm at different times in previous lives. But if beings don't see these Four Noble Truths and penetrate them with wisdom, deeply understanding them and moving the mind closer to enlightenment, then the Buddha is sharing that there's this rebirth into the lower realms of hell, animal, and afflicted spirit. And once a being is there, it takes many, 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 many rebirths to ever be able to get back to the human realm or ever be able to get back to a heavenly realm where those two realms, a being would be able to attain enlightenment in the human realm, in the heavenly realm. So some of the other teachings that Buddha shares around this is that now that you've obtained this human state, He's essentially shares, don't be complacent, don't let it go to waste, that now that you're in this ideal existence of a human being where you can cultivate the mind, you can get to enlightenment, and you have this ability to experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant, which is the motivation to get to enlightenment, use this human existence wisely particularly now that the teachings of the Buddha are starting to shine in the world more and more, this is an ideal time for you to be able to experience enlightenment through dedication, determination, and diligence of learning, reflecting, and practicing to experience the results for yourself. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Uh, it does not appear there are any questions on this chapter, sir. All right, so we'll move to chapter three. Let's go to Ali for chapter three, sir. Um, noble truth is not impossible to know. The noble one are plenty. There are not only 100 vacha or two or three or four or 500, but far more male ordained practitioners, my disciples, who by realizing for themselves with direct knowledge, experience, hear, 
and now enter upon the upon and reside in liberation of the mind and liberation by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the things. There are not only 100 watcher or two or three or four or 500, but far more female ordained practitioners, my disciple, who by realizing for themselves with direct knowledge experience, here and now enter upon and reside in the liberation of the mind and liberation by wisdom that are tainless with the destruction of the things. There are not only 100 watcher or two or three or four or 500, but far more male household practitioners, my disciples closed it with widely by leading life of celibacy, who, with the destruction of the five lower feather, will reappear spontaneously in the heavenly heavenly realm, and there attain final nibbana, final enlightenment, without ever returning from that world. There are not only 100 watcher or two or three or four or 500 but far more male householder practitioner my disciples closed it invite enjoying sensual pleasure who carry out my instruction respond to my advice have gone beyond doubt become free from confusion gains courage and become independent of other in the teaching the teacher's teachings there are not only 100 vacha or two or three or 500 but far more female householder practitioners my disciples close in right leading light of celibacies who with the destruction of the five lower feather will reappear reappears spontaneously in the heavenly realm and there attain final nibbana, final enlightenment without ever returning from that world. There are not only 100 vacha or two or three or 500, but far more female householder, household practitioners, my disciple, close invite, enjoy sensual, sensual pleasures who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, become free of confusion, gain courage and become independent of other in the teacher's teachings. Great, thank you, Ali. This teaching, you. yes, you're welcome. This teaching here is helping you to see that it's possible to learn and practice to attain enlightenment and understanding these four noble truths. That's what he's sharing here. And he's going through the different groups of people and that there's you know extensive numbers of people that have attained enlightenment and have attained the third stage of enlightenment in the second stage and the first stage. He's going through each one of those. So these first two paragraphs here, he's talking about ordained practitioners who are male and ordained practitioners who are female who've attained enlightenment. And he's saying there's more than 500 of each of those. 
And this is really key because in some Buddhist communities, people will tell you that women can't attain enlightenment, and this is not true. It's something that people will share orally, but if you go back to the original teachings of the Buddha, not just here, but in other parts of his teachings, he talks about women who have attained enlightenment. So if you ever hear anybody that says a woman can't attain enlightenment, you know that that's not true because here's the Buddha explaining during his lifetime that women have attained enlightenment during his lifetime. And I know women now, today, that are enlightened as well. So it's possible for ordained males and household practitioners who are male to attain enlightenment. It's possible for female ordained practitioners and female household practitioners to attain enlightenment. It just requires work and understanding and practice of this path. So he goes through these different groups. Here he's talking about male practitioners that are in the household life that have attained the third stage of enlightenment as a non-returner because here he's talking about being reborn in the heavenly realm and from the heavenly realm they attain enlightenment and they don't come back to this world meaning the human realm so that's what that third stage of enlightenment is and then he says the same thing right here about females as well and then here he's talking about individuals who have attained either the first or second stage of enlightenment through either a male household practitioner and then down here, female household practitioners. So here, this is proof positive for you that all human beings, male or female, can attain enlightenment. And if you ever hear anything otherwise, you've seen the words of the Buddha and you know the truth. Any questions on this particular chapter? There's not appear to be any questions on this chapter, sir. Okay. One thing I'll add before I move on is you can add up the numbers here. If you can imagine during the lifetime of the Buddha, just the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that ultimately started learning and practicing with him. Initially, he only had five people that started, but by the time he died, there was just thousands and thousands and thousands of people because once someone starts sharing teachings that are liberating the mind and people can see for themselves that their mind is becoming more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and actually attaining enlightenment, the word starts spreading. So here you can see if you start adding up, you know, more than 500 for each one of these groups, you know, just here, we're talking a thousand, 2000, you know, 3000 minimum, minimum, minimum just here with this. So he had, you know, just thousands and thousands and thousands of students during his lifetime. It looks like Ali has a question. I guess I'll just pause here before we go to the next chapter. Yes, sir. I was about to um, correct myself and say Ellie had her hand. Thank you. Um, I think towards the end, like he was talking about the householder that is still enjoying sense pleasure. Is that like, so what he's saying is it's okay to um, have like invite clothes, enjoy sense pleasure. And as long as you carry out his instruction, um, you will become free of um, confusion, gain courage. Um, you could be enlightened as well, right? These other paragraphs aren't enlightened beings. So if someone's enjoying sensual pleasures, that means that they're either in the first or second stage of enlightenment. Because in the first and second stage of enlightenment, there's still central desire there. 
and those beings are still craving and desiring sensual pleasures is what we call it. The mind still has craving, desire, attachment. But once the mind is enlightened, you're still going to eat a piece of chocolate cake and enjoy it. It tastes great. It's just your mind is not going to cling to it and crave it. Or you'll still go on holiday or vacation and you'll see a beautiful view and you'll be like, oh, wow, this is so beautiful. This is absolutely wonderful to sit here and see this outstanding landscape. But then when it's time to leave, it's like, okay, time to leave. Instead of like, oh, I don't want to leave. Oh, it's so beautiful here. I want to just enjoy my chocolate cake. Oh, do I really have to give it up? That's because the mind's craving and clinging to it. So what he's describing here these other paragraphs uh, below are beings that are not enlightened. These first two paragraphs, he's talking about beings that are enlightened. And then this paragraph where he's talking about reappearing spontaneously in the heavenly realm. In this one, these are the third stage of enlightenment. And then this one here, where it's talking about enjoying central pleasures in this one, these beings are either in the first and or second stage of enlightenment because they're still enjoying central pleasures, but they've gone beyond doubt, which means they've eliminated the fetter of doubt. He doesn't talk about personal existence view here, but he talks about being free of confusion, gain courage, and become independent of others in the teacher's teachings, meaning that you're not just conforming to what other people think and what other people are telling you. You have a clear vision of what the path to enlightenment is by the time you get to the first and second stage of enlightenment. And even though you see other people having alcohol and drugs, you're going to choose not to do that by the time you get to the first or second stage of enlightenment because your mind is seen very clearly that those things lead to unwholesome results and other things along the, that, those lines. But these central pleasures are referring to the fetter of central desire. So an enlightened being up here, you notice that he says he doesn't say that they're enjoying central pleasures but they're still going to enjoy life. They're actually going to enjoy life much more than in the unenlightened state because in the unenlightened state, the mind is having discontentedness. It's having anger and sadness and frustration and it's bouncing up and down with all these different emotions. But once the mind is enlightened, it's steady, it's calm, it's peaceful, it's joyful, but you're just not clinging to the various experiences and situations that you have wanting those to be permanent. So therefore the mind doesn't get shaken up and it doesn't experience those painful feelings. But you'll still, like I mentioned, enjoy a piece of chocolate cake or enjoy a conversation with a friend or whatever. But when it's over, it's over. And you just know that it was impermanent from the beginning and you just move on and go to the next thing. Thank you. You're welcome. Should we go to the next one, Miranda? Uh, yes, sir. All right, chapter four. Okay, let's go to Marcy for chapter four. Thank you, Miranda. Chapter four, with the teachings and yourselves as your refuge. But I have not already declared, uh, Ahanda, that we must be parted, separated, and severed from all who are dear and agreeable to us. How, Ahanda, is it to be obtained here? May what is born come to be conditioned and subject to disintegration, not disintegrate. That is impossible. It is just as if the largest branch would break off a great tree standing possessed of heartwood. So too, Ahanda, 
is the great monk community standing possessed of heartwood. Sarputa has attained final nibbana, final enlightenment. How, Ahanda, is it obtained here? May who, may what is born come to be conditioned and subject to disintegration, not disintegrate. That is impossible. Therefore, Ahanda, reside with yourselves as your own island, with yourselves as your own refuge, with no other refuge. Reside with the teachings as your island, with the teachings as your refuge, with no other refuge. And how, Ahanda, does a monk reside with himself as his own island, with himself as his own refuge, with no other refuge, with the teachings as as the island, as his island, with the teachings as his refuge, with no other refuge. Here, Ahanda, a monk resides reflecting on the body in the body, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. He, res he resides reflecting on feelings and feelings, mind in mind, mental objects in mental objects, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving, displeasure in regard to the world. Those monks, Ahanda, either now or after I am gone, will reside with themselves as their own island, with themselves as their own refuge, with no other refuge, who resides with the teachings as their island, with the teachings as their refuge, with no other refuge. It is these monks, Ahanda, who will be for me topmost of those determined on the training. All right, thank you, Marcy. This is a short chapter, of course, just one page, but there's a lot to talk about here. Let's break this down step by step. So first, he's talking here where he says, you know, but have I not already declared, Ananda, that we must be parted, separated, and severed from all who are dear and agreeable to us? Here, what he's talking about is once you die, you're going to ultimately be separated from all the people who are near and dear to you. So rather than essentially wait until then to train the mind to let go, which is going to be really difficult, do it now, essentially, is what he's saying. So he's saying, how, Ananda? Is it to be obtained here, you know, basically right now? May what is born come to be conditioned and subject to disintegration, not disintegrate. That is impossible. So what he's saying here is anything that's a conditioned object is impermanent, that it's going to disintegrate. So a conditioned object is something that arises, that changes and fades away. So for example, this shirt is a conditioned object. At one time, it was just cotton on a plant. And before it was cotton on a plant, it was a seed. And before that, it was something else, right? So this shirt arose. Now it changes because as it gets washed, as it gets worn, it gets soiled, it gets dirty, the fabric wears out. It arose, it changes, and then eventually it'll fade away. It'll no longer exist. So every person and everything that's conditioned, that's arising, that's changing and fading away, any of these things that are impermanent, they're going to disintegrate and they're going to fade away that we're no longer going to have them. And training the mind to understand that and not to grab on and hold them tightly, that's where the mind can get to liberation. He talks about this heartwood. What Hartwood is, and people would have known this during his lifetime because they were very familiar with the resources and their surroundings and 
farming is if you take a tree and you you know cut it in half you know cut it at the trunk or wherever you'll see that in the very very core of the tree it's kind of a darker wood typically this is called the heartwood it's the really hard wood it's the very high quality wood where the wood on the outer edges of the tree where the bark is and the inner bark and going in deeper into the tree as you start on that outer part it's not as a high quality of wood as you get deeper and deeper into the core of the tree. This is the higher quality of wood, and that's the high quality wood that you would like to make really nice things out of. The outer wood, you're not gonna make as high quality products out of, but the inner wood being this heartwood, this is higher quality wood that you're gonna make high quality products out of. And what he's doing is he's comparing his community of ordained practitioners to this heartwood saying that his community of practitioners are of this high quality because during his lifetime there were many different teachers that were claiming that it was their teachings that led to enlightenment but he knew it was his teachings but there's no outward appearance of a buddha you could be talking to a buddha you could be learning with a buddha and not even know that that person's a buddha necessarily until you start learning and deeply understanding what a buddha is and what their teachings are and you start getting more and more liberated of the mind so people around him there were some people who were learning with him and deeply understanding his teachings and discovering this attainment of enlightenment and they ultimately knew his background and that he didn't have any teachers and that he dedicated his life to sharing the teachings with countless people that were attaining enlightenment and he left the teachings after his death so that multiple people could continue to attain enlightenment so people started learning that he was a buddha but not everybody in that region of the world that he was in knew that he was a buddha and he didn't need them to necessarily know that he was a buddha so while he had lots of students that were learning there were other teachers that had lots of students too. So here he's sharing that his community is this heartwood, this high quality wood. And he's talking about this student, Saraputta, who was one of his very, very close students that had attained final Nibbana. What final Nibbana is, is if somebody's attained enlightenment during their life, then for the rest of that life, they're going to experience that peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. The mind is enlightened. But then when they die, we call this final enlightenment or final nibbana. We don't actually call it death. We call it final enlightenment. And the reason why is because your mind can become enlightened during your lifetime and it'll be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. But if you experience some kind of physical injury, you'll feel the physical pain. The mind won't react in a negative way. It won't have this mental anguish but you'll still feel the physical pain. You can't escape the physical pain as long as you're in the human existence. And that physical pain is there for a reason because if you are standing too close to a fire, there needs to be a signal to your mind that says, hey, move away from the fire. So you make a wise decision to move away from the fire. So you're gonna need that little bit of physical pain just to let you know to make wiser decisions. But you won't have the mental anguish as part of that. But once you attain enlightenment in this life and you experience that peaceful, calm, serene, and set mind with joy and you die, that's where the mind and the body completely separate. And now that's final enlightenment because you won't even experience physical pain at that point because the mind and the body have separated. But you can't eliminate that part of the attachment, so to speak, during this life because 
you're still alive. There's going to be a body and there's going to be a mind that's together. So here he's saying this this uh, student of his, Sariputta, has attained final nibbana or final enlightenment. And he's basically saying, okay, just like Sariputta, who attained enlightenment, died, essentially, he's saying, you know, his body disintegrated, right? And that, that was a conditioned existence, that it arose, it changed, and it faded away. Sariputta arose, changed, and faded away. Then he says, okay, if you're interested in experiencing this enlightened mental state, because Ananda at this point wasn't actually enlightened. Ananda was another one of Gautama Buddha's closest students. He didn't actually attain enlightenment until after the death of the Buddha. So the Buddha is providing him this instruction that, okay, if you or other people after me would like to attain enlightenment, that you should reside with yourself as your own island. What this means is you should make decisions for yourself, that you should progress towards these teachings, you should learn these teachings, you should consider these teachings to be the true refuge. This is what's going to protect the mind and have no other refuge other than these teachings, that you can't run to the mountains, you can't run to the forest, you can't go other places to get this protection, it's these teachings that are going to truly protect the mind. And if you reside with these teachings as being the thing that you really focus on with determination, dedication, and diligence, then you'll be able to experience this enlightened mental state as you get closer and closer to that goal. I'm going to pause here for a second and just explain something else related to this particular teaching. This is a, a famous line that you'll see quoted in a lot of places in Facebook and other places. Oftentimes people will point to this and say, the Buddha said this because you don't need any teachers to learn and practice the teachings. You can attain enlightenment by yourself. And people are misunderstanding what he's actually saying. He's not saying that you don't need any teachers. He says in other places of his teachings that he, you need teachers and you need guides to understand the teachings. You wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment without a teacher. Only a Buddha can actually do that. So people here are misunderstanding what he's actually teaching. If you tried and attempted to attain enlightenment without the guidance of a teacher, you wouldn't actually be able to attain enlightenment. And this is where some people are being misled or misunderstanding. And if they think that this line is saying that you don't need any teachers or guides, then why did the Buddha teach for 45 years? If he was teaching that you don't need any teachers, then he would have awoken from enlightenment and he would have said, okay, I did it. Now you guys can do it. Have fun. I'm going back to the palace, right? But he didn't do that. He spent 45 years of his life sharing these teachings because people need teachers. Only a true Buddha can actually awaken without the guidance of any teacher. So if you see people point to this particular line as saying, see, you don't need any teachers because he says reside with yourself as your own island. What he's saying here is don't be influenced by other people's opinions and views. Don't be influenced by unwholesome conduct and unwholesome decisions of others, but instead make your own wise decisions and see that in the teachings as being your refuge. That's what's going to ultimately protect the mind. Going down here, what he's talking about in terms of what is the refuge, because right here he's talking about in how Ananda does a monk reside with himself as his own island, right? So here the Buddha is actually describing it. 
what people will oftentimes do is they'll just grab this one and they don't see this other one. But right after it, he describes, you know, how is it that you can reside as your own island with your own refuge? He talks about practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. When he says reflecting on body as body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind and mental objects as mental objects, this is what we call the four foundations of mindfulness. What the four foundations of mindfulness are is teaching you to have awareness of mind that prior to discontentedness arising, prior to any anger or sadness or frustration or boredom or loneliness or shyness, even happiness, excitement, elation, before any of these conditioned pleasant feelings, conditioned painful feelings, or conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant arise, there's going to be some bodily sensation. Like if you've ever been shy and you felt butterflies in your stomach, that's a bodily sensation. If you've ever felt anger starting to arise and you felt heat or sharp pains in certain parts of your body, that's the anger arising. That's the bodily sensations. So what he teaches as part of his Eightfold Path is to develop this awareness of the bodily sensations so that as you start observing the bodily sensations, you can cut off and let go of discontentedness there. Because if you don't cut it off and let it go as a bodily sensation, then it's going to become feelings in the mind. And you can still cut it off there as feelings in the mind, but you can circumvent this whole experience of having anger and frustration and all these other discontent feelings. You can circumvent that by observing the bodily sensations and cutting it off and letting it go there. Whether it's pleasant feelings, when you feel all this happiness, excitement, elation starting to build, and you feel the bodily sensations, you cut that off and let it go there. Or if you feel these painful feelings arising, anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, any of those painful feelings, you observe that as a bodily sensation, getting more and more aware of that, and you cut it off and let it go there. Then the feeling never comes into the mind and you've saved yourself a whole litany of of difficulties and troubles. And then the same thing with neither painful nor pleasant, like shyness and other things, you cut it off and let it go there. That's why you're training and breathing mindfulness meditation to cut off and let go. When your mind is focused on the breath and it moves off the breath and you cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath, you're training the mind to more easily let go. So that then when you observe the bodily sensations in daily life where discontentedness is arising, you can easily cut it off and let it go there. And like I mentioned, if you don't catch it at the bodily sensations, you'll be able to cut it off and let it go at the feelings, perhaps. If you don't cut it off there, then it starts affecting the condition of the mind. That's what mind in mind is, that you need to be aware of the condition of the mind, because if you don't catch it at the bodily sensations, you don't catch it as a feeling. Now this anger starts affecting the condition of the mind for multiple hours, multiple days, maybe even a week or so that your mind is rumiating over some problem that occurred several days ago. And then that condition of mind starts feeding these mental objects of things like ill will or central desire or complacency. These are more deeply rooted like containers So what essentially happened as we were born as a baby, we didn't have the wisdom to understand this path to enlightenment. So at different times, you know, as we aged, when we were a baby, we didn't have any ill will. We were just 
in life with craving. We had ignorance, of course, but over time we started experiencing situations where people were aggressive or harsh or yelling at us. And we had these bodily sensations that we weren't aware of because we didn't have the wisdom. We started having these feelings of anger and frustration coming into the mind. We didn't know what to do with that. We probably blamed other people for it. It started affecting the condition of our mind for longer and longer periods of time where we were angry for longer and longer periods of time. And then we formed this mental object of ill will where now we have this bitterness, this hostility, this aggression towards other beings. So what the four foundations of mindfulness are doing is teaching you to catch it at the bodily sensation so you're no longer feeding these mental objects and you're no longer feeding that ill will. So if anger is starting to arise and you can cut it off and let it go as a bodily sensation, then you're not feeding this mental object. All the while, you're using something like loving kindness meditation and the other parts of the path to uproot these mental objects of something like ill will, for example. So loving kindness meditation is going to uproot ill will and get rid of this mental object. And you're kind of cutting off any kind of more feeding of that mental object by observing the bodily sensations and cutting it off and letting it go there. And as you uproot all these different mental objects that are in the mind, as you're cutting off and letting go of rising discontentedness as a bodily sensation, now the mind's getting close to enlightenment. The Buddha says that if somebody's able to observe the bodily sensations when the discontentedness is arising, and you can easily observe that and then cut it off and let it go there, he says, this person is very near to enlightenment. So you would like to train the mind so well in meditation and in daily life that you become aware of any discontentedness that's starting to arise as a bodily sensation and be able to cut it off and let it go there. But it takes more and more training for you to do that. But that's the ultimate goal. But even if it comes into feelings in the mind, you can still work to cut it off there. You can still work to cut it off if it's affecting the condition of the mind for multiple hours or days. And this way, you're not feeding those mental objects. So that's what he's talking about in terms of residing as your own island and residing with these teachings as your refuge is practicing these four foundations of mindfulness and ensuring that you develop awareness of mind, that you're aware of the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of mind, and the mental objects. And you can see those four things separately, the four foundations of mindfulness. And then as you're uprooting all of that, the Buddha is saying, okay, you need to be dedicated to be able to do this. You need to clearly comprehend, meaning you need to clearly understand this wisdom. You need to have this clarity of mind. You need to have this mindfulness or this awareness of mind. And you need to remove this craving, this yearning, this longing, this chasing after the objects of your affection and the displeasure in regard to the world. So if you're craving for the world to be a certain way, if you see certain things happen in the world and you're like so angry that there's been certain things that happen in the world, maybe the war or the mass shooting that just occurred or other things that are occurring in the world, if you're getting angry over those things, that's because you have craving and displeasure in regard to the world. You're not understanding impermanence and you're holding on and you're craving for the world to be a certain way. Now, it's important to understand the difference between craving, indifference, and then walking the middle way. Craving would be 
just wanting the world to be a certain way. And when it's not that way, the mind is discontent when you see things like a war or mass shootings or things like this. But also if the mind was indifferent and you didn't care what was going on in the world where, okay, so what? There's a war. People are dying. Who cares? If you had that mentality, then you don't have this middle way developed where there's loving kindness and there's compassion. There's concern for the world, but there's not craving because you know that that war isn't a decision that you made. That's not a way. There's nothing you can do to influence that. And the same thing with something like a mass shooting. If you've been affected by that at any particular time over the last few days, your decision making isn't such that you could have changed anything about that situation. So allowing your mind to be shaken up because these things are occurring in the world is only just detrimental to you because there's this craving and displeasure or this complaining about the world. So this path is all about focusing on your own mind and training your own mind not to have this craving and yearning and longing where you're going to start complaining and having displeasure about the world, but also not having indifference and not caring about the world either, but instead practicing this middle way where there's this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, which is loving kindness, And there's this concern for the misfortune of others, which is compassion. So that's what the Buddha is talking about here is removing this craving and displeasure, wanting the world to be a certain way, letting go. And he says, doing that, that is how a monk resides with themselves as their own island. So here he's teaching how to do this. He's not saying that you don't need a teacher. He's actually sharing that these are the teachings that you need and then having resided with these teachings as your own island he's saying okay this person is the top most those are determined or dedicated to the training the people who are really on top of mindfulness and really paying attention to the mind have this deep awareness of the mind can observe these bodily sensations the feelings the condition of the mind in these mental objects, he's saying these are the topmost practitioners that are really determined to get to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Well, actually, sir, um, something regarding the previous chapter, Alaska had made an observation that there seems to be a heavy dose of patriarchy in Buddhism. And I was wondering why that is. A heavy dose of what? I'm sorry. Patriarchy. What's patriarchy? Um, seeing men as superior to women, sir. Oh, okay. I disagree with that opinion because I know that's something that people say in certain communities, that people say that you know men in Buddhism are more important than women. I disagree with that. I know that there are certain people in Buddhist communities who feel that way. But you'll never see anything directly from the Buddha where he says that. He doesn't say that anywhere in his teachings that men are higher than women ever. But you'll see people nowadays who might be practicing that way. And where I think that this comes from is when Buddhism came out of India down into Sri Lanka and then it moved into Thailand, for example, from that's the way that the historians think that Buddhism arrived in Thailand about 800 to 1200 years ago. By the time Buddhism made its way to Thailand, 
the female ordained practitioners had died out. There was no longer any female ordained practitioners because you need 10 females preceptors in order to ordain another female. So by the time Buddhism came into Thailand, there was only a male ordained community. And this is what you see predominantly in Thailand today is a male ordained community. So people oftentimes get the opinion in the in my view, misperception that Buddhism is uh, slanted towards males and looks at males as being higher, but it's not actually true in the way that the Buddha taught it. It might be true in certain people's minds, but that's not the way that the Buddha actually taught it. And this occurred, in my opinion, because female ordained practitioners didn't make it to Thailand so that there wasn't this vibrant female ordained community by the time Buddhism came here. But in the last 20 years, they're actually revitalizing the female ordained path. There are some, at least one temple that I know of in Bangkok that's dedicated to females. And throughout Thailand, I think we have about three or 400 ordained females right now. And what they did to revitalize it is those women became ordained in other countries that still have the female ordained practitioner community. And then once they ordained there, they then came into Thailand and, and revitalized this practice of women having the ordained path. So while this is something that you might hear in Buddhist communities that they look at, that Buddhism looks at men as being higher or more superior than a woman, you won't see anything from the Buddha that says that because that's not how he thought. But people today, because of their craving, because of their anger, because of their ignorance and unknowing of true reality, their mind is polluted and they're not practicing the teachings necessarily as closely as what a Buddha would. So when the Buddha was alive, he didn't say anything about females being lesser than a male. And I don't see it that way either. I see all beings as equal because that's what the Buddha taught is that all beings are equal not only males and females, but also different positions. He looked at kings and queens the same way as he did, you know, some servant or some slave. He was willing to teach people of all different levels of society. In fact, one of his famous students was a prostitute prior to becoming a student of the Buddhas. And I don't know if you know this story that there was this prostitute who was kind of in the prime of her career and invited the Buddha to come stay with her. And he got this invitation through his students. And his students thought that the Buddha wouldn't go to her house, but they delivered the invitation to him anyway. And he actually went to her house. And they were shocked that he went to visit a prostitute. And he ended up staying there overnight because she invited him to stay at her house. And the way that it's written and the way that it's talked about is that she was constantly pursuing him, trying to get him to be her husband because apparently the Buddha was very handsome and of course very wise. So people were very interested to be around him, but he wasn't dissuaded because he had let go of any kind of sensual desire. He wasn't interested in a sexual relationship. And so he left there the next day, but this woman continued her career. And maybe like 20 years later, 30 years later, the Buddha was in that same town and the townspeople were 
mocking this person. She was old. She was decrepit. She didn't have her former beauty. She didn't have her former wealth that she once had. They were, you know, throwing stones at her. They were kicking dirt on her in the middle of the street. She didn't want to be a student of his when she was in the prime of her career because she was so wealthy. So the Buddha, when he saw her in the middle of the street, he asked her, he said, well, you know, you wanted me before and I didn't want to be your husband, but now I want you. Do you want to be with, you know, with me? Do you, would you like to be one of my students? And she said, yes. And she decided to ordain with him. Now that she had lost all of her wealth, she had lost all of her beauty. She ended up ordaining as a female ordained practitioner and getting to enlightenment. So this whole idea that Buddhism or the Buddha is against women for any reason, this is just people's misperceptions and their opinions. But when you look at the words of the Buddha and how he conducted himself during his lifetime, that was never the case. And then I'll ask as a follow-up um, comment in the Vinaya, there is discrimination against nuns. You can send me that if you like, Lasco, because uh, you must be looking at something that I haven't seen. I'd be pleased to look at it and verify the validity of the teaching because there's things that are shared out in the world and different kind of books that aren't 100% the truth. In fact, there's a, an author and a publisher here in Chiang Mai that I just met this week that's asking me to read his book so that he can publish it. And even in the first chapter, in the first two or three pages, there's so many things that aren't accurate based on the words of the Buddha because there's just been this constant impermanence, excuse me, that has affected the Buddha's teachings. And it's not a clear depiction of what the actual teachings of the Buddha are. So send me what it is that you're saying that you feel is discrimination towards women. Because from my perspective, from everything that I've ever seen from the Buddha, he treated all beings equally. An enlightened being isn't going to discriminate against any group of people whatsoever. An enlightened being. And surely a Buddha isn't going to discriminate against any beings whatsoever because their goal is to help all beings get to enlightenment they have this deep loving kindness this deep compassion so depending on what it is that you send me i'll look at that for you and then we can talk about it through private message and if we'd like to talk about it in class we can because that way people on our podcast and people who aren't involved in our private message can benefit from that but there's no way that an enlightened being or a Buddha is going to discriminate against any type of person. Uh, that appears to be all the questions that we have for now, sir. All right, let's go to the next chapter, which is chapter five. Uh, liberation of mind is the heart one. So this holy life, monks, does not have gain, honor, and praise for its benefit or the attainment of virtue, moral conduct, for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or wisdom and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable liberation of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood, and its end. Suppose a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, and wandering into heartwood, came to a great tree standing possessed of heartwood, and cutting off only its heartwood, he would take it away, knowing it was heartwood. Then a man with good sight, seeing him, might say, this good man knew the heartwood, the sapwood, the inner bark, the outer bark, and the twigs and leaves. 
Thus, while needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, he came to a great tree standing possessed of heartwood, and cutting off only its heartwood. He took it away, knowing it was heartwood. Whatever it was this good man had to make with heartwood, his purpose will be served. All right, so here the Buddha is comparing the liberation of mind to this high-quality wood that he's calling heartwood, and we call it heartwood today. So he's saying here at the beginning that this path to enlightenment, essentially this holy life, does not have gain, honor, and praise for its benefit. So if somebody's on this path to enlightenment just to get admiration from others, they're not going to get to enlightenment. They have to eliminate that desire for admiration from others or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, you know, just doing moral conduct, maybe just to make more money or something like this. That's not the goal of what the Buddha actually attained or the attainment of concentration for its benefit. So even though concentration is a quality of mind that is cultivated as part of the path to enlightenment, the Buddha is saying that's not the real purpose for the attainment of enlightenment or for the wisdom and vision for its benefit. So cultivating this wisdom so that you can like debate people and you can win, right? And being able to see clearly the path to enlightenment. The Buddha is saying even that's not the real benefit of this path to enlightenment. But what is the real goal is this unshakable liberation of mind. That's the goal of this holy life, of this path to enlightenment, is getting to the point where the mind is truly enlightened. There's no more discontentedness. The mind is unshakable. It's calm. It's steady. And it's this permanent liberation of mind. He's saying that's the real goal of this path to enlightenment. That's the heartwood. That's the high quality goal that you're looking to achieve. And he's using this analogy of somebody who deeply understands trees and getting to the core of the tree. And once they understand that core of the tree and cutting it out, that's where they can make this product using the heartwood and it'll serve this person's purpose. So the same thing is once you get to enlightenment, it will serve your purpose of now, I usually say that attaining enlightenment is like the beginning of the rest of your life. Because once you get to enlightenment and the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing any discontentedness, from that point forward, you'll be able to accomplish anything that you would like in life because you've eliminated all this discontentedness. And that's the real goal, the unshakable liberation of mind. Any questions on this chapter? Yes, sir. How can a practitioner be sure that they're not becoming attached to the benefits that are experienced as they approach closer to enlightenment? It can be challenging because those benefits can be very profound and very pronounced. And the way life is experienced even just day to day seems like night and day compared to before that practitioner was on that. Yeah, if you're observing pleasant feelings arising, like when somebody says, oh, you're so friendly, or wow, your mind is so concentrated, or you have such a great memory, you know, all these different qualities of mind that you're starting to be able to cultivate and practice in daily life, and somebody compliments you on that, if you feel these conditioned pleasant feelings arising, 
that's how you know that the mind's craving and attached to that. And then oftentimes there can be some arrogance or ego, that conceit, that pride, that boastfulness, even the judging of measuring and comparing other people, kind of looking down on other people whose mind's not as concentrated as yours, or looking down on people whose wisdom isn't as deep and profound as yours, or looking down on people who have a lesser moral conduct in you. If you start observing those kind of things, that's where you know that you know, you've got to eliminate that conceit and you've got to eliminate that craving, desire, attachment to these qualities and just be satisfied with what is. This is what I say that an enlightened being walks with wisdom in a smile. Because when you're walking down the street, you're going to hear people arguing, you're going to hear people honking horns, you're going to see people discontent and complaining, and all you need to do is walk with wisdom and a smile. Know that you've cultivated the wisdom and just smile and be pleased that you've actually gotten closer and closer to enlightenment or the mind is enlightened rather than looking down on people or rather than getting these pleasant feelings that, wow, look at me, I'm so enlightened. If the mind thinks that way, that, wow, look at me, I'm so enlightened, the mind isn't actually enlightened because there's still that conceit there. So you've got to let all those things go and just walk with wisdom and a smile. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. That appears to be all the questions that we have on this chapter. All right. Chapter six. Let's go to Allie for chapter six. Thank you, Miranda. Anyone can produce Dibbana enlightenment. And what Ananda are the six classes? Here, someone of the black classes produce a black state. Someone of a black class produce a white state. Someone of a black class produce Nibbana enlightenment, which is neither black nor white. Then someone of the white class produce black state. Someone of the white class produce a white state. And someone of the white class produce Nibbana enlightenment, which is neither black nor white. And how is it, Ananda, that someone of black class produce a black state? Here, someone has been reborn in a low family, a family of candalas, hunter, bamboo worker, cart maker, or flower scavenger, scavenger, one that is poor with little food and drink, that subsists with difficulty where food and clothing are obtained with difficulty and he is ugly and sightly ill proportion with much illness, blind, crippled, lame, or paralyzed. He does not obtain food, drink, clothing, and vehicle, garment, sense, and ointment, bedding, housing, and lighting. He engaged in misconduct by the body, speech, and mind. In consequence, with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in a plane of misery, in a bad destination, in the lower world, in hell. It is in such a way that someone of the black class produce a black stage. And how is it, Ananda, that someone of a black class produce a white stage? Here, someone in you can read, has been you reborn. Can read, you can read oh. this part, Ali, because that other oh. part is just repeating it. 
So this, this first in paragraph here, oh. this is a repeat of what we already saw. So rather than reread all that, you can just read the new part. Okay. He engaged in wholesome conduct by body, speech, and mind. In consequence, with the breakup of the body after that, he is reborn in a good destination in a heavenly role. It is such a way that someone of the black class produce a white stage. And how is it, Ananda, that someone of a black class produced Nibbana, enlightenment, which is neither black nor white? Having shape of his head or beard, he put on what tree rope and go forth from the household life into the homelessness. When he had thus gone forth, he abandoned the five hindrance, defilement of the mind, things that awaken wisdom, and then with his mind well established in the four foundation of mindfulness, he correctly developed the seven factor of enlightenment and produced nibbana, which is neither black nor white. It is such a way that someone of black class produced nibbana, which is neither black nor white. And how is it, Ananda, that someone of white class produced a black stage? He obtained food, drink, clothing, and vehicle, garments, scents, and ointment, bedding, housing, and lighting. He engaged in misconduct by body, speech, and mind. In consequence, with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in a plains of misery, in a bad destination, in a lower world, it hell. It is in such a way that someone of white class produce a black stage. And how is it, Ananda, that someone of a white class produce a white stage? He, do I skip here? Yeah, you, sk oh, okay. you skipped this one in the previous one. But what all this is talking about is uh, the white class is this higher family and this affluent family. And he's talking about how now we're moving to a white state, which is here. Okay. Okay. Um, he engaged in wholesome conduct by the body, speech, and mind. In consequence, with the breakup of the body, after that, he is reborn in a good destination, in a heaven, heavenly role. It is in such a way that someone of white class produce white stage. And how is it, Ananda, that someone of white class produced Nibbana, enlightenment, which is neither black nor white? Having shape of his head and beard, he put on three robes and go forth from the household life into the homelessness. When he had thus gone forth, he abandoned the five hindrance, defilement of the mind, things that weaken wisdom, and then with his mind well established in the four foundation of mindfulness, he correctly developed the seven factor of enlightenment and produced nibbana, which is neither black nor white. It is in such a way that someone of a black class produced nibbana enlightenment, which is neither black nor white. These, Ananda, are the six classes. Okay, thank you, Ali. So here, what the Buddha is saying is that anybody can attain enlightenment. This is actually really good connected to Alaska's question earlier, because here, during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was this belief that people who were born in a 
less wealthy family, they were destined to a life of servitude and difficulties and you know, they were considered a lower class people and people who were born in more affluent, wealthy families, they were considered a higher class people and destined for better things in life. And things haven't necessarily changed that much from the lifetime of the Buddha. We still even have some of that around now. But people thought that if you were born into a wealthy family, then you were noble and you were wholesome. And if you're born into a family that lacked resources that you were, you know, unwholesome and you were dirty or something like this. So the Buddha is using this black class to describe like this, this family that's considered to be of lower class and of less wealth. And he's saying, okay, a person that's born into a family that has less resources, they can do unwholesome things and kind of move into a a lower uh, realm. That's what this going from black class to a black state is. But then he says, you know, you can also be born into a family that lacks wealth and go up as well. You can move towards the heavenly world in this heavenly existence, which remember, that's not the actual goal of these teachings. But then he says, okay, you can also be born into this lower class family and you can actually attain enlightenment as well. You can move that way and actually get to the point where you're actually attaining enlightenment just because you're born into a family that doesn't have that many resources doesn't mean you're destined for a life of difficulty and struggles. You can improve your life, right? So the Buddha was always uplifting and helping people to see that, you know, no matter where you're born, where you're born and what type of family you're born in doesn't define who you are as a person. You can improve your wisdom and become more and more noble as the Buddha used to encourage his students to think about themselves as noble, no matter what background they came from. And then here he talks about this white class, which are people that are born into a more affluent family, that if they have unwholesome conduct, misconduct by body, speech, and mind, then they can be reborn down into a lower realm, into a bad destination, the realm of hell. And then also a affluent person who's living in a family of wealth can also be reborn into this heavenly world, into a heavenly existence. And that's going from white class to white state. But then he's saying, okay, someone who's born into a affluent family can also attain enlightenment. So he's saying everybody and anybody can attain enlightenment. So this connects to what Alaska was asking. And it also connects back to what we were talking about before with males and females can both attain enlightenment. There's nothing that would hinder a male or a female from attaining enlightenment in terms of their gender or what type of family they were born into or their sexual orientation or anything like that. All these minds of human beings are functioning the same way. It doesn't mean that if you're born into a low family, you can't attain enlightenment or if you're a female, you can't attain enlightenment. That's not how enlightenment works. A person's mind, no matter what family you're born into, no matter what gender you're born into, no matter what your sexual orientation is, you can still gain this wisdom and practice in such a way that you'll be able to move the mind to enlightenment. So anybody and everyone can attain enlightenment as long as you have the ability to learn, reflect, and practice these teachings. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear that we have any questions at this time, sir. All right. So now let's move to chapter seven. Yes, let's go to Marcy for chapter seven. Thank you, Miranda. 
the humble. Now, Kunda, here, humbleness should be practiced by you. Others will be cruel. We shall not be cruel here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will kill living beings. We shall abstain from killing living beings here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will take what is not given. We shall abstain from taking what is not given here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be unsullibate. We shall be celibate here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will speak falsehoods. We shall abstain from false speech here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will speak maliciously. We shall abstain from malicious speech here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will speak harshly. We shall abstain from harsh speech here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will gossip. We shall abstain from gossip here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be craving. We shall not crave here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will have anger. We, should, we shall be without anger here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be wrong view, ignorance. We shall be of right view here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be wrong intention. We shall be of right intention here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be of wrong speech. We, sh we shall be of right speech here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be of wrong action. We shall be of right action here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be of wrong livelihood. We shall be of right livelihood here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be of wrong effort. We shall be of right effort here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be of wrong mindfulness. We shall be of right mindfulness here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be of wrong concentration. We shall be of right concentration here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be of, of wrong wisdom. We shall be of right wisdom here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be of wrong liberation. We shall be of right liberation here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be overcome by complacency. We shall be free from complacency here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be restless and worried. We shall not be restless and worried here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be doubters. We shall go beyond doubt here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will have ill will. We shall not have ill will here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be revengeful. We shall not be revengeful here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be insulting and disrespectful. We shall not be insulting and disrespectful here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be domineering. We shall not be domineering here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be jealous. We shall not be jealous here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be materialistic. We shall not be materialistic here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be dishonorable. We shall not be dishonorable here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be unworthy, untrustworthy. We shall not be untrustworthy here. It should be practiced thus. Others will be arrogant. We shall not be arrogant here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be difficult to guide. We shall be ease to guide here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. 
Others will have unwholesome friends. We shall have, uh, we shall have wholesome friends here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be neg negligent. We shall be diligent here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be without confidence. We shall have confidence here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will see no danger of wrongdoing. We shall see the danger of wrongdoing here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be of little learning. We shall be a great learning. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will be unmindful. We shall be established in mindfulness here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will lack wisdom. We shall possess wisdom here. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Others will adhere to their own views. Hold on to them forcefully and relinquish, let go of them with difficulty. We shall not adhere to our own views or hold them forcefully, but shall relinquish them easily. Humbleness should be practiced thus. Thank you. A great Mar passage. Yeah, thank you, Marcy. I like this one too. Here the Buddha just bam, 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 gives it to you. The unwholesome qualities of mind and the wholesome qualities of mind that you should be cultivating are the wholesome and the unwholesome you should be eliminating. So rather than go through each one of these, I'll just open up to any questions you guys have on these. This is just him just clearly laying it out of, you know, what are you eliminating as unwholesome and what are you cultivating as wholesome? Do you guys have any questions on this chapter? Yes, sir. Um, it seems like this is saying very simply, no matter what others are doing, we should be focused on our own life practice and remain humble in that life practice. Is that the correct way to understand this, sir? Yep, that's the, the latter part of, you know, the sentence. And yeah, here where he's saying others are going to do these things, we're not going to be doing those things because he's trying to guide people to understand what an enlightened mind is because he attained this enlightened mental state where his mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But other people don't know what that is because when you're in the unenlightened state, you don't know what enlightenment is. The only way that you know what enlightenment is is if a teacher guides you that has experienced enlightenment and they can explain it to you and help you see the qualities of mind that would be cultivated, that are wholesome, and the unwholesome qualities of mind to eliminate. So here's the Buddha making it very clear of what they're going to see in the world in terms of unwholesomeness. And he's saying, okay, in order to cultivate this enlightened mind, here's how you need to do that. And here's the wholesome qualities. And as you're doing this, be sure to always remain humble because the mind has a tendency to become arrogant when you start seeing how much wisdom you're really cultivating as part of this path and you see even just common simple things that you understand other people don't even understand those very simple things the mind can become quite arrogant and prideful or boastful and instead you need to have that loving kindness and compassion that concern for their misfortune that they haven't been able to discover these teachings seek them out and practice them in the same way as you so yes, Miranda, I agree with what you said there, 100%. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Um, Marcy has her hand raised, so let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, so teacher, uh, just a little bit of guidance here. As I'm reading this passage, um, 
the hair on my arms arose, the hair on my neck arose, my heart started to pound and I was feeling this this surge of energy. And I noticed like where my body sensations happen, I instantly am arousing feeling at the same time. When we practice the four foundations of mindfulness is what I'm, um, a goal of mine should be to only be alerted by the body by body and not let, let it get to the feeling arising. Um, yes, that's correct. Just because just in this moment right now, this is kind of what I'm kind of dealing with. And, and okay. Okay. Yeah. My, Thank you, I, I apologize. My internet's been really splotchy over the last couple of weeks. It sounded like you had stopped talking and then I answered and then it kind of came in afterwards. So yes, the answer is yes. When you observe that bodily sensation arising, you would like to cut it off and let it go. And to help you understand why you're experiencing that, you can look at the seven factors of enlightenment, where the Buddha talks about as you investigate his teachings, he talks about this energy springing up in the mind. And then there's this joy that comes into the mind. So you've got to be able to control the mind when that happens. So if you're investigating his teachings and you observe this energy springing up and this joy springing up, you have to be able to kind of maintain the middle way rather than allow the mind to go to that excitement where it has these pleasant feelings or these conditioned pleasant feelings. So where you observe the mind wanting to run and and go to those pleasant feelings, you got to restrain the mind and pull it back and bring it back to the middle. And that's where the Buddha says, if you feel this excitement arising, that you should practice tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. That's the other parts of the seven factors of enlightenment that brings the mind back to the middle. And then the factor of enlightenment that's kind of allowing you to do all of this is mindfulness or awareness of mind. So you can see the truth in his teachings and independently verify because he says, he says, you know, when you investigate these teachings, there's going to be this energy that springs up in the mind and then there's going to be this joy. And you can see that as you're reading this, that, that, energy is springing up. And if you haven't seen that teaching from the Buddha yet, you will as you explore this book series where he explains how investigating his teachings will spring up this energy and joy. That appears to be all the questions that we have at this time, sir. All right. So we'll move to chapter eight. The discontentedness of heavenly beings and humans. Monks. Heavenly beings and humans seek excitement in forms, have excitement in forms, excite in forms. With change, fade away, and elimination of forms, heavenly beings and humans dwell in discontentedness. In the case of sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects, the discourses are similar to that of forms. But monks, the, tata, the Tathagata, the Arahant, the perfectly enlightened one has understood as they really are the cause and the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of forms. He does not seek excitement in forms, does not have excitement in forms, does not excite in forms. With the change, fading away, and elimination of forms, the Tathagata resides joyful. In the case of sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects, the discourses are similar to that of forms. All right. 
right. Thank you, Miranda. So this is going back to what we studied in volume nine, because this volume 10 kind of integrates a bunch of teachings from different parts of the Buddha's discourses. And this is about the six sense bases, where he's saying that in order to get to enlightenment, you can't seek this excitement or you can't crave this excitement. You can't long and yearn for this excitement in forms in sounds, in odors, in flavors, in physical objects, and in mental objects. These are the external sense bases that are being experienced through the internal sense bases of the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact in the mind. So he's saying that heavenly beings and humans dwell in this discontentedness because if their central desire in the mind Uh, which is that fourth fetter, then beings are going to chase after the objects of their affection. They're going to seek this excitement. They're going to have this craving, desire, attachment. And as long as you are not yet understanding that the reason why the unenlightened mind experiences painful feelings is because it's chasing after pleasant feelings, that you need to understand that in order to get to enlightenment, that it seems counterintuitive because in the unenlightened mind, we basically chase after pleasant feelings all the time and we see that as like the enjoyment of life is that we chase and chase and chase and chase and we get the objects of our affection and we experience those pleasant feelings but yet they're unsatisfying because they're temporary as soon as they leave the mind goes back to these painful feelings or neither painful nor pleasant so until the mind is willing to let go of these temporary conditioned pleasant feelings it will never experience this permanent joy that the Buddha is describing down here, where he says the Tathagata resides joyful, right? So you've got to get to the point where you see clearly that the problem isn't just this suffering, that people use this word suffering in the translation of the Buddhist teachings. It's discontentedness, because when the mind is in that excited state, chasing after pleasant feelings, you wouldn't say that you are suffering, but the mind is discontent discontented or experiencing discontentedness. And when you see the mind longing and yearning for those pleasant feelings, you've got to restrain the mind. You've got to cut it off and let it go. And by you being willing to let go of the temporary pleasant feelings, then you can get the mind to this place where it's always satisfied that the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. So you need to be able to see clearly that that's the true problem is the mind's chasing after pleasant feelings. That's the central desire. And it can't satisfy these six sense bases permanently through impermanent conditions. So as long as the mind is chasing after impermanent things through these sense bases, it's going to continue to experience conditioned pleasant feelings that are temporary and unsatisfying. And then it's going to experience these painful feelings which are highly unsatisfying. So you got to let all that stuff go, restrain the mind, keep training it in breathing mindfulness meditation, keep training it with generosity to let go, keep restraining the mind. When you see those bodily sensations, cut them off, let them go, cut them off, let them go. And then over time, gradually, the mind moves more and more to this middle way. Questions on this chapter? It does not appear that we have any questions at this time, sir. All right, chapter nine. Uh, yes, let's go to Ali. Thank you, Miranda. This of the sixth sense base, 
Hmong haven't really been and human sick consignment in form, sound, odor, odor, flavors, physical object, and mental object. Have excitement in form, sound, odor, flavor, physical object, mental objects. Excitement in form, sound, odor, flavor, physical object, mental object. With the chains faking away and the elimination of form, sound, odor, flavor, physical object, mental object, heavenly being and human dwell in discontentness. All right. Thank you, Ali. So here the Buddha is making it really clear and very concise. He's essentially saying what I just said earlier, that as long as the mind is chasing after the objects of its affection, yearning and longing for these pleasant feelings, which is this first part here where he's talking about exciting in forms, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects. As long as we allow the mind to do that, chasing after these conditioned pleasant feelings, then when they change, they fade away, they're eliminated. That's the impermanence. When those things are eliminated, then there's going to be this painful feelings of discontentedness. So the mind moves from these pleasant feelings to these painful feelings. And that's because of central desire, which is what we studied in the last book. Any questions on this chapter? There's not appear to be any questions at this time, sir. All right. So we have this last chapter for today, chapter 10. Yes, let's go to Marcy for chapter 10. Thank you, Miranda. Chapter 10, consideration to go forth into homelessness. Monks, before my enlightenment, while I was still unawakened, not yet fully enlightened, I too, being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, defilement, sought was also sought what was also subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement. I sought what was also subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement. And what may be said to be subject birth to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, death, sorrow, defilement. Wife and children are subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, defilement. Men and women slaves, goats and sheep, fowl and pigs, elephants, cattle, horses and mares, gold and silver, are subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, defilement. These objects of attachment are subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, defilement. And one who is tied to these things, obsessed with them and entirely craving them, being himself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, defilement, seeks what is also subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement. Then I considered thus, why, being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, defilement, do I seek what is also subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement? Suppose that being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, having understood the damage, the danger in what is subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement, I seek the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless enlightenment, sorrowless and undefiled supreme security form bondage nibbana enlightenment. Later, while still young, a black-haired young man endowed with youthfulness in the prime of life, 
Though my mother and father wished otherwise and wept with tearful faces, I shaved off my hair and beard, put on a yellow robe, and went forth from the home life into homelessness. Here, I'm just going to say B, before my enlightenment, while I was still unawakened, not fully enlightened, I considered thus. Household life is crowded and dusty. Life gone forth is wide open. It is not easy while living in home to lead the holy life entirely perfect and pure as a polished shell. Suppose I shave off my hair and beard, put on a yellow robe, and go forth from the home life into homelessness. All right. Thank you, Marcy. So here are a few things to talk about. The Buddha is talking about you know, entering into the ordained life. And he's describing something here that he did before he was awakened. He talks about how he was chasing after things that were subject to impermanence. He's using these words subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, and defilement. But what this is uh, referring to is that he himself was impermanent. And he's saying that he sought after those things that were impermanent. And as he sought after those, that's how he observed that his mind was discontent and he ultimately discovered the universal truth of impermanence and craving anger and ignorance and all these other teachings he gives examples here of things that are subject to impermanent and when he's saying that he sought after them what he's talking about here is what i say chasing after the objects of our affection that when we chase after the objects of our affection whether it's a life partner whether it's a child whether it's other material possessions here, some of the material possessions they had during his lifetime. But today we have countless material possessions that we're gonna have material possessions as the mind is enlightened, but it's all about how the mind relates to these things. If there's yearning and longing, if there's this craving, if you have a certain mobile phone and then the new version comes out and you have to hurry up and buy that, and then the next version comes out, you have to hurry up and buy that. That's the craving, the longing, the yearning. And it's very expensive to support a habit of craving, desire, attachment. Whereas if you restrain that and you pull it back, you'll see that you can actually live on a very modest uh, amount of income. So the Buddha is explaining how he trained his mind to let go and no longer chase after the objects of his affection in these impermanent conditions. And he also talks here about how he shaved off his head, his hair and his beard and his parents, you know, wept with with tears. And I've described this in other classes where royal people in the royal family, they grew their hair very long, even males, as a way of depicting that they were part of the royal family. That's how people in the villages knew that you were part of the royal families. You had this long flowing hair because only royal family would have the money and the time and the wealth and the caretakers to take care of this long hair that when you were just a commoner, you would be out in the fields working, you would have a business or what have you, you would be laboring. You wouldn't have time to sit around and take care of this long flowing hair and it would be all tangled up. So they didn't have cameras to take pictures of the king and the queen and the princes and the princesses and distribute those 2,500 years ago. So if you saw this entourage of people and there's this person with this long, beautiful flowing hair, you would know that they're part of the royal family. So when the Buddha 
who wasn't a Buddha yet, he was Siddhartha Gautama, when he cut off his hair and went into homelessness, this was like a sign, like I'm not going back at all because nobody would ever believe that he was actually part of the royal family because it took him 29 years to actually grow that hair and he wouldn't be able to grow that back overnight. So him cutting that off was a way for him to let go of his royal heritage, but it's also a way to help you realize non-self. This is why even today, people will shave their head because if the mind is fully cultivated non-self, then it shouldn't matter what the physical appearance looks like. So this is why people will shave their head, they'll wear simple clothing. They might do this for a very extended period of time. And ultimately, as an enlightened being, if you went back to wearing you know, different clothing or you went back to growing your hair, that's fine, but you might decide that for six months or a year or two years or something, you would like to you know, wear simple clothes or you would like to shave your hair. And that can help you to realize non-self, which is ultimately gonna help you to eliminate the ego and arrogance because there's not this projection of a self-image into the world, having this boastfulness or trying to appear a certain way to other people that you just, it doesn't matter how other people perceive you. That's that part where the Buddha talks about reside with yourself as your own island. That if you don't care how other people perceive you, you just know that you're making wise decisions about how you conduct yourself in daily life. Then if somebody judges you as an enlightened being, they wouldn't care. They wouldn't care if somebody judged them. You know, if they said, oh, my goodness, that white shirt you have on is so ugly. How could you ever wear that shirt? An enlightened being is not going to have their mind shaken up by that. But also if somebody says, wow, that's the most beautiful white shirt I've ever seen. That's so amazing. They're not going to have these conditioned, pleasant feelings. They might say, thank you, you know, appreciate your kind words or whatever they end up saying, but their mind isn't going to arise those conditioned, pleasant feelings. Therefore, they're not going to feel painful feelings if somebody says something negative about the the shirt or the clothing or the hair, something like this. So the Buddha is describing how he entered into this life of homelessness. And this is very humbling for somebody to go from having the luxury of living like a prince and having all this wealth and servants and food and entertainment, going to living on the street or living in the forest, wearing rag robes and walking down the street accepting food off of uh, donate, you know, with donations, you're basically sustaining your life from donations. This is very humbling to the mind. Um, not everybody is going to necessarily do that and actually ordain, but if somebody uh, chose to ordain, then you can experience that. Or if you choose to set up your life as a household practitioner and live from donations and maybe structure your life in such a way that you're able to do that, you can experience those kind of things as well. And then lastly, what the Buddha is explaining here is he's talking about household life, how it's very cluttered, right? It's like especially during his lifetime, because nowadays we have food systems, we have clothing that we can go and purchase, we have resources that are easily accessible to us if, as long as you have the funds to support it. But during his life, 2,500 years ago, they didn't have the food systems and all the educational systems and clothing systems and shopping and things like that that we have nowadays. So life was very difficult for household practitioners. So it was very challenging for them to be able to let go of certain things as part of their 
practice and train the mind to let go because they were just so busy with cultivating the fields and planting crops and cultivating the crops and harvesting the crops and preparing the food and washing dishes and cleaning the houses and you know working and all these different things so that's why the buddha is saying that household life is crowded and dusty this is where you have to have that inner discipline if you're going to be a household practitioner and attain enlightenment you're going to have to have this inner discipline to be able to sustain a long-term practice to move the mind to enlightenment where he's saying okay life gone forth meaning ordaining is wide open right because once you go and ordain you don't have the responsibilities of daily household life anymore your goal is to attain enlightenment your goal as an ordained practitioner is to learn reflect and practice the teachings and get to enlightenment and your life is such that it's been set up that way for you to do that you don't have to be concerned about food water clothing shelter or medical care because other people are providing this for you but also it's not going to be this wonderful uh, luxurious uh, life because you're living based on donations and what people are actually willing to give you as part of being in this ordained lifestyle and even a teacher nowadays if you live from donations it's the same thing that you're not always going to be able to get what you necessarily need because you're living from the donations of other people. So he's saying it's not easy to live this household life and live pure as a polished shell. He's not saying it's impossible. He's just saying it's very difficult. So some people will say that it's impossible for a household practitioner to attain enlightenment. This is the same thing people say that it's impossible for a woman to attain enlightenment. But it's not true when you look at the words of the Buddha. If the Buddha would have said here that it's impossible for a household practitioner to attain enlightenment and everybody has to ordain in order to attain enlightenment, he would have said that. He would have made that as part of his eightfold path. There would have been a step that says right ordination, right? <laughs> because if everybody had to ordain in order to get to enlightenment, he would have made it a central core teaching as part of the Eightfold Path. But he didn't do that because it's not required for everybody to get ordained in order to attain enlightenment. Because the Buddha's goal is for the entire world, all of humanity, to attain enlightenment. If everybody was ordained, who would run the world? Who, who would uh, you know, do the things that we need in life? So he never said that household practitioners can't attain enlightenment. Household practitioners attained enlightenment during his lifetime. It was just very challenging, very difficult for them because of the way their life was situated. But I would say nowadays that it's actually a lot easier or a lot more straightforward or a lot more possible for a household practitioner to attain enlightenment than it was during the lifetime of the Buddha because we figured out food systems, we figured out medical systems, how to clothe ourselves in ways that back then they didn't have those things. There was a lot more time, effort, energy, and resources that needed to be invested by household practitioners just to sustain their life. Where nowadays we have things much more organized in our society that gives us more free time. And this is why we tend to fill up our free time with kind of, you know, worthless things, unbeneficial things. Whereas if you clear those unbeneficial things out of your life, you actually realize you have a lot of space in your life to dedicate to something like learning the teachings, practicing meditation, talking with a teacher, getting personal guidance and all these other things that you need, that this personal space didn't really exist in the 
excessive amounts of time that we have nowadays that didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. So that's why he talked about household life being crowded and dusty. And it's also very challenging in the household life if you're trying to eliminate central desire, for example, and ultimately to get to enlightenment and fully eliminate central desire, you need to eliminate sexual intercourse. Well, if you're living in a household life and you're trying to eliminate central desire and you walk into a room where maybe your husband or your wife is undressing and you see their physical body and you're arises this interest in sexual contact that's kind of hard for you whereas if you're living an ordained life and you're at the monastery and you're living that ordained lifestyle you're not going to see a naked body other than your own because the way that your life is structured so you're more sheltered in an ordained life so that's why i sometimes say that living in a household life if you attain enlightenment your mind would have had to gain a whole lot of wisdom and have a whole lot of inner discipline because you're going to be involved in things that as an ordained practitioner, they're not even involved in. You might walk into a room or you might click on a TV and see some sexually graphic material that an ordained practitioner isn't going to necessarily see because they're not watching TV as part of their practice. So just like the Buddha says, household life is crowded and dusty. It's, it's quite challenging in the household life to attain enlightenment, but it's not impossible. You just have to have this inner discipline. And it's more possible today than it would have been, I feel, in the lifetime of the Buddha. Questions on this chapter? Um, there are no questions at this time, sir. Um, Alaska was pointing out a lay practitioner who reached enlightenment during the time of the Buddha, Milarepa. Yes, there's household practitioners that attained enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha. So this is another misunderstanding that exists in the world today, that there's some people who believe that household practitioners can't get to enlightenment. And there's some practitioners who think that women can't get enlightened. This might be where your other question came from, is that some people in the Buddhist community think that way, but there's nothing that supports that in terms of the words of the Buddha. Or if you look around and you get involved in a community of practitioners where there's enlightened people in that community, you'll find males and females, you'll find ordained practitioners, you'll find female ordained practitioners, you'll find male household practitioners, female household practitioners that are, that are enlightened. But people that aren't in those communities and aren't aware of what enlightenment is and aren't aware of how to determine if people are enlightened, they wouldn't know these things. So there's a lot of misunderstanding in the world. And one of my goals through this book series and all the classes and resources that I share is to root our learning in the words of the Buddha because it's his teachings that lead to enlightenment, not what one person said to another, said to another, said to another. 2,000 years later, we're getting it, you know, kind of, you know, 40th, removed from the Buddha. And if you've ever played that telephone game where somebody whispers in the ear, you know, the the gray elephant jumped over the brown fence and it goes around, goes around, goes around. By the time it comes back around, it's like the yellow giraffe jumped in the hole and ate a sandwich. You know, it's like uh, it just keeps changing and changing and changing. And that's what essentially has happened from people 
from 2,500 years ago until today, there's been all this impermanence that has affected the teachings. So when you root your practice in the words of the Buddha, then you know what did he teach and what he didn't teach, and you can independently verify those teachings yourself, and then you know the truth as the mind becomes more and more liberated. So that should be, I feel, the goal of every single practitioner who's seriously interested in attaining enlightenment is root your practice in the words of the Buddha, because that's what's going to truly lead you to enlightenment. Any other questions, Miranda? It does, it does not appear um, that there are any more questions at this time, sir. Okay, sounds good. So I'll just thank you all for joining for today's class, and I'll share with you guys the future classes of what we've got coming up is next Saturday, we're going to be doing chapters 11 through 20 in this same book, which is volume 10. So you can read those ahead of time. You can read those before and or after class, and then you'll get that much more benefit out of the actual class. Tomorrow in our group learning program, we're going to be in volume one, studying chapter four, which is titled The Four Noble Truths, Establishing Right View. If you've read that chapter or you've even heard me talk about it in the past, it's really helpful to hear more than one time to deeply penetrate the Four Noble Truths. You heard the Buddha in today's class talk about how important the Four Noble Truths are, and he does that all throughout his teachings in many different ways. So I always encourage students to learn that multiple times because hearing it multiple times can really help it to soak into the mind. If you've only heard it once or twice, or you've only read the book once or twice, it's always helpful to read that chapter again and have another opportunity to learn the teachings through an actual class. So if you'd like to join tomorrow's group learning program, Sunday at 9 p.m. Thai time, I'll be sharing the Four Noble Truths, establishing right view so that you can have that breakthrough to understand discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination, and the path forward of how to completely eliminate discontentedness. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be doing our fourth class of our four-part series of loving-kindness meditation. And then after that, we're going to go into a four-part series on chanting. I'll teach you guys how to do Buddhist chanting. So thank you again for joining today's class. Thank you for your dedication and your diligence to learning and practicing. I'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.